0: Listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour, I'm Rena Gleiser. Welcome back. Today's guest is Whitney Untied of Ackerman. We discuss the pro bono culture in Miami, where Whitney is based, her career, the firm's pro bono program, access to justice for juvenile lifers, poverty simulation exercises, and more. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Whitney. Welcome to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. Thank you for making the time for us. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited for our conversation. Let's jump right in. So to start, could you tell us about your background and how you got to Ackerman? I think that I really might
1: be the luckiest lawyer in the world. I started out my career knowing for sure that I wanted to do public service. I chose my law school based on a career in public service. I went to a state school, um, and I went to a school that had a strong clinical offering and a strong public service offering. So when I graduated from the University of Florida College of Law, I graduated with as little debt as possible and with as much experience in the public service realm as I could possibly get. I did an Equal Justice Works AmeriCorps Fellowship for a year and then spent the rest of what I thought was actually going to be the entirety of my career at the Public Defender's Office in Northern Florida representing criminal clients and juvenile clients in delinquency court. Through that process, I also got really involved outside of just my office. I got involved in the Florida Bar I got involved training and teaching with the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. And I also got involved in a leadership position with the National Juvenile Defender Center and with the Southern Affiliate, the Southern Juvenile Defender Center. And it was really through leveraging all of my networks and leveraging all of my experiences within the public service realm that I got to know all of these amazing people who were doing fabulous work in the private sector as well. And so when Ackerman decided that they wanted to develop a full-time pro bono position at the firm to direct the national initiative for pro bono across the firm, my name came to them through my networks, and I was just lucky that they picked up the phone and gave me a call. It turned out for me to be the perfect fit, and I am pretty sure that they think so, too.
0: That's wonderful. I wanted to ask a little bit about your passion for public service. You talked about, you know, you went to law school with the goal of working in the public interest and public service was a high priority for you. How, how did that come about? What was it in your background, your, your character, that um, this was the sort of light bulb for your future?
1: I went to undergrad to be a journalist. Um, and the reason I wanted to be a journalist was number one, because I like to write, but number two, because I really felt a desire to make a mark on the community and the society that I live in. After undergrad, I moved to New York City to pursue that goal of journalism. And I got in with a couple different consumer magazines over the time that I was working in New York. And it was fabulous. I was writing, I was interviewing, I was going to amazing parties, I was living in New York. But after a couple of years, I began to feel like I wanted more, that I wanted to make more of a difference, and that the career that I was pursuing at that point was maybe not the right way for me to make a difference. And so when I decided to go to law school, I specifically decided that I wanted to pursue a career courtroom focus where I would be able to make an impact, both in terms of an impact on the individual clients that I would be serving as well as an impact on the community as a whole. And so from even before I applied to law school and making that decision about whether or not to actually go to law school, that was really a driving force. And that was not something I left behind once I got into the law school environment.
0: That's a great backstory. And I I think there's a lot of attention now paid toward meaning at work and work that creates purpose. And I think your story ties into that very nicely. Um, Could we talk a little bit about being an Equal Justice Works Fellow? I think it's possible that you're one of our first guests who has a background as a, an, as an EJW fellow, or at least that we've talked about on the program. So I think our listeners would be really interested in hearing a little bit more and hearing about you know how you spent your uh, fellowship experience.
1: I was really excited to be a part of the Equal Justice Works family. I joined Equal Justice Works through their AmeriCorps program, which is actually not a program that exists currently in the form that it existed when I had applied. The Equal Justice Works AmeriCorps program that I participated in was developed initially as the Pro Bono Legal Corps in the wake of Katrina. So I was a 2007-2008 Equal Justice Works fellow along with several colleagues who were based in Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana who were developing pro bono networks specifically in response to Katrina. I was in Gainesville, Florida, so not a Katrina response at all, but my sole purpose as part of the Equal Justice Works family was to develop a pro bono ethos in a rural-ish part of the state of Florida, bringing together law students from the University of Florida, bringing together private practitioners at small firms in the Gainesville area into a network of opportunities and a network of collaboration with the local legal services organization there. So my time was spent developing clinics, my time was spent doing public outreach, both to the legal community and to the community at large, and working within my legal aid organization um, and within the Equal Justice Works Network to develop programs that were going to last beyond just my couple years of service. It was amazing. Um, I was able to develop three or four new pro bono programs. I developed a radio show that did advice with call-ins from an even more remote rural community outside of Gainesville. I did pro se clinics. I did direct representation of civil clients uh, through my practice at Legal Services. And what that really did for me was to broaden my Understanding of what legal services are, what pro bono legal services can do, and how even just a small theming opportunity, like meeting with someone in a clinic one time for a couple hours, can really change the trajectory of a person in needs' life. It was an amazing opportunity for me, and I think it really set the standard for what I realized I wanted to accomplish writ large and why I was so interested in joining Ackerman.
0: I wanted to follow up on that a little bit. I'm curious how both that experience and your time um, as a public defender Either, I don't know if the right word is, give you a leg up or inform <laughs> what you do in your current position. How does that background um, an asset in, in what you're doing now?
1: For me, I think my background is an asset because I know the people who wear the boots that are on the ground every single day. When I was with Equal Justice Works, I developed relationships with people not just across the state of Florida, but, but across the country who are still in their roles in public service. Like me, their roles have changed and grown over the years. So now the people that I knew who were staff attorneys at legal services organizations are now executive directors, senior attorneys, managing attorneys at their legal aid organizations. So that experience, besides giving me firsthand understanding of what it's like to serve on the front lines, Help me build relationships and networks that are helping today as I'm working to grow Ackerman's involvement in pro bono in all of our offices across the country. And then being a public defender, you are truly at the forefront of poverty law. You're going to the jail or you're going to prison to visit with clients. You're dealing with people who have been accused of something that they didn't do You're dealing with people who have been accused of something that they did do, but our Constitution enforces their right to not just representation, but quality and effective representation. I learned as a public defender how to fight the good fight every single day, even when you walk away and you haven't won the outcome that your client wanted. And I think that's really important. I think it's important for pro bono lawyers to understand that pro bono is not about winning or losing cases. Yes, it is always better when you walk out of that courtroom with a win or when you walk out of the transaction having gotten your client the outcome that they wanted. But ultimately, pro bono is about service. It's about providing the best representation you possibly can, about helping the client to feel good about himself or herself and about helping someone or helping an organization to really understand that there's someone who cares, that there's someone who's fighting for them and that there's someone in their corner.
0: Those factors are so important and they also are what make it so hard for the pro bono community to assess our impact, <laughs> right? Because if we were just measuring wins, that's an objective, you know, something that you can count and look at, but to capture Feelings of fairness and being heard, right, and and true justice, having a voice, those are all very hard metrics to capture and measure. So I think that demonstrates the complexity of what we're doing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It, but, you know, I think that on an individual basis, some of my most memorable client services have not been when I've won. But they've been when I've lost and I've gone down fighting, and the client has seen that. I have gotten as many hugs as I've gotten from clients who have walked out with a victory. I've gotten the same number of hugs from clients who have walked out in defeat, but in defeat, knowing that there was someone standing next to them, someone giving them a voice, someone fighting for them, someone helping to make sure that their story was heard. And although it's maybe not a measurable metric, I think that for each of us who participates in legal services, either as a career or through pro bono, that that is an individual experience that can't be replicated and that is invaluably immeasurable.
0: Yeah, I agree. We aspire to equal justice under law, not wins under law or victories under law. So I think the human dimension is is so important. Um, You are in uh, Florida. We're talking to you right now from from Miami. So could you tell us a little bit about the pro bono and access to justice culture in Miami uh, and Florida statewide, since you have experience in all various parts of the state? Yes. And I will say across
1: the state, um, access to justice in Florida is truly in dire straits. We have in Florida more than 60% of the advertised job openings pay less than a living wage. So when you're talking about people who are out of work looking for work, when you're talking about people who are working and looking to pull themselves up to a higher paying job, most of the jobs that are open for Floridians are not jobs that are going to pay a living wage. And in, in Florida, a living wage is about $17 an hour. We have the second highest rate of people living without health insurance. We have the third highest population of disabled veterans in the nation and the third highest population of human trafficking victims. Over a million children in Florida are living in poverty. And these are statistics that are just absolutely untenable. But what we also have in Florida is a statewide legal services network and a statewide network of law firms and individual lawyers who have dedicated action to working together, getting out of silos, and actually working together, collaborating together to try to deal with these issues. We have an Access to Justice Commission that was appointed by the Chief Justice of the Florida Supreme Court that has been looking into these issues and has been reporting back to the court and reporting back to the Florida Bar on how we can best begin to resolve these issues. We have a statewide Florida Bar Foundation that is funded by the Florida Bar to specifically focus on the delivery of legal services to those in need. We're looking at creating resources to support pro se litigants. We're looking at using technology and new and innovative ways to connect lawyers over distance with people living in rural and underserved areas who need the help. And we're looking at really trying to focus on creative service models from a consumer perspective from the perspective of the person receiving the legal services, as opposed to the perspective of the lawyers looking to give the legal services. And for me, I think that perspective is really important because it doesn't matter if you develop the most innovative project ever in the history of the universe. What matters is, does that project serve a need in the community that is going to help people be able to lift themselves up out of poverty, help people be able to access the justice, help people to be able to find a life and a lifestyle that is going to positively affect them individually, positively affect their families, and positively affect the communities that they live in. Florida has a long way to go but I'm really proud of the way that we are all working together to try to resolve the issues that we see and try to identify the issues that aren't always so clearly visible to us.
0: It's a big state with a lot of challenges and now seems like an exciting time where where the community is very active. There's a lot of creativity and energy and, and a lot of positive things going on. So in preparing for our chat today, I was reading that something called the Miami Pro Bono Roundtable recently held a second poverty simulation exercise. So I thought this would be interesting to talk a little bit about. First, what's the Miami Pro Bono Roundtable? And then we could hear more about what these experiential exercises are and what their purpose is.
1: Sure. Yeah. Let's talk about the Pro Bono Roundtable. Um, Pro bono roundtables were developed first in major cities like New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, San Francisco, to bring together the firm representatives from large firms who were focusing their firm's values in community service through pro bono. And so it started in other areas and has now come down to Florida. And we're so excited about that We have active pro bono roundtables in Miami, in Orlando, Tampa, and Jacksonville, each working individually, bringing together members of firms' pro bono committees to talk about the issues affecting each locality and to talk about how firms can get more involved in becoming better partners to the legal services organizations. And what I've seen specifically in Miami is that. Our pro bono roundtable is not just comprised of representatives from big law firms. We're also bringing in representatives from boutique firms, from smaller firms, even from individual private practice lawyers who are really holding on to their own ethos of service and their own dedication to pro bono. And so we're not just looking at big law firms with people like me who are dedicated full-time to pro bono, but also smaller firms that have a more local presence and that have that same level of commitment to the community. So it's been really exciting to be part of the development of the pro bono roundtable in Miami, working together with colleagues at other firms to work together with legal services organizations and those who are on the front lines to make sure that we're providing valuable services to people in the community. And then as far as the poverty simulation, the Miami Pro Bono Roundtable put together the idea of the poverty simulation earlier this year for an annual pro bono fair that we generally hold in March. The March poverty simulation was so successful that together the firms that sponsored brought it back as part of the ABA's Celebrate Pro Bono Week at the end of October. Our simulation was a coordinated effort among several roundtable members, along with the Legal Aid Society. We came together, we developed it, um, developed the outreach from scratch, and brought in a trained facilitator from the Florida Bar Foundation, who did the Community Action Poverty Simulation, which is a simulation that was developed by the state of Missouri and then made available to anyone who wants to do it because the simulation is so valuable in helping stakeholders in the systems understand what it's really like to experience poverty. We decided to hold our poverty simulation at the Miami YWCA in Overtown, which is an underserved neighborhood within really close actually to downtown Miami. And so we brought lawyers and judges and professors and law students out of their silos, out of their tall buildings, out of their comfort zones and brought them to a daycare center in a low-income community so that while we were simulating the poverty issues, we were surrounded by people and service providers who deal with those issues on a day-to-day basis. And I think that that made the outcomes of the poverty simulation even more powerful than they might otherwise have been. We spent a half day from nine o'clock in the morning until noon simulating a month in the life of people experiencing financial stress. And I I really think that that opportunity seeing what options are and how many options are not available to people dealing with poverty and having to make choices even though it was a pretend simulation, having to make choices that might positively affect one facet of your life but you knew were going to negatively affect another facet of your life was really powerful for those of us who participated in the simulation. Um, One public defender who came to the simulation from the Miami-Dade public defender's office said at the end that the exercise really helped her move from sympathy to empathy. And I think it's really empathy that truly propels people to action. And I think through this experience, those of us who participated in it walked away with a much stronger understanding of why people sometimes make the choices that they do, which don't seem to be on the face, the most apparent choice that a middle class person would make in a given circumstance. It was a really powerful experience.
0: Thank you. I think that's a really helpful description of these poverty simulation exercises and the power that they have to inform, educate, move, inspire. And I really recommend that people check them out, either to host them or to attend one in their area. Um, They can really make a difference in the way we think about our communities and the role that we can play in making our communities a better place. Let's talk a little bit about your firm and Ackerman's pro bono program. Could you provide a brief 30,000-foot uh, overview?
1: The brief 30,000-foot overview of our pro bono program is that we have taken our initiative on a national level. Before 2014, when Ackerman implemented their Ackerman Philanthropic Initiative, and before 2015, when I joined the firm as the first full-time director of pro bono initiatives. The firm encouraged pro bono, but it was really a personal choice. If an individual lawyer wanted to do pro bono, he or she was encouraged to do pro bono and supported in the pro bono work that they do. Now, with me and my role as the director of the initiative, the firm is doing a lot of outreach internally and externally. So I develop relationships with nonprofit organizations that refer clients to us, and I work internally to help lawyers find their own pro bono mission, whatever it is that speaks to their personal ethos, as well as pro bono that can really draw from their own legal expertise. It can be hard for a lawyer who has a transactional practice to think about doing pro bono work that brings you into a courtroom setting. And on the flip side, it can be really hard for a trial lawyer to decide that they want to do transactional pro bono work as part of their give back. So for our lawyers that feel most comfortable doing pro bono within their areas of expertise, we are actively looking to match them with those types of opportunities. And for lawyers who are looking to step out of their silo, we are actively making sure that they get the mentorship and the training and any kind of assistance that they need to expand their practice into a different type of work doing pro bono. It's been really, really exciting for me coming in as an outsider of the firm to be part of this growing and developing initiative that so many people within our firm have understood is important, not just to the communities and not just to the people that we serve through pro bono, but also important to your own personal growth as a lawyer, your development within your practice, your relationship building inside the firm and outside of the firm. Pro bono is just one of those things that works on all levels for everyone who is involved.
0: You've been in your position since roughly April 2015. Looking back, what have been your biggest surprises? Do you have any lessons learned? And what do you know now that you wish you knew then?
1: Honestly, I think my biggest surprise was a really pleasant surprise. I was overwhelmed coming in as an outsider. I was really overwhelmed by the breadth and the depth of Ackerman Attorneys' personal commitments to their communities. I think as lawyers, once you're in your silo, you maybe kind of tend to stereotype people outside of your silo. And what I found when I walked into a very large, very corporate firm atmosphere was a team of individuals who care about each other, who care about their communities, and who want to help. And for me, that was a, an eye opener, frankly, from the outside, and a, a very happy eye opener from the outside. And I am excited that I was able to come in and, and not be the cheerleader teaching people why pro bono matters but to be able to be the cheerleader for people who already knew why pro bono matters and for people who really were excited about getting more involved in the firmwide initiative. I think that for those of us who decide to take on this full-time pro bono role within the private sector, The biggest thing to remember is to make sure that you are taking everyone at face value, that you are understanding the role that everyone in the firm plays, as well as the role that those outside the firm play, the legal services organizations, the providers, the social workers. Everyone is really working together to make good things happen for people in need. And I don't think I fully understood that. Um, But of course, now it's something that I really truly and fully embrace as part of the firm.
0: So in addition to cheerleading, how do you spend your time day to day, month to month? I have a multifaceted
1: job. I think probably the biggest way that I spend my time is really working on building our pro bono initiative. I build the relationships with nonprofit organizations and with service providers outside of the office and across the country, which can be a little bit overwhelming when you're based in Miami in the South on the East Coast to build and maintain those relationships with service providers in New York, in Chicago, in L.A. and in Texas. Um, And I work really hard to help my lawyers decide what they want to get involved in. And how to get involved on a way on a level that's going to be meaningful for them as well as meaningful for the clients that they're serving, so working to connect my attorneys with pro bono opportunities that speak their language is something that 's really important to me and a huge value add to the firm. Um, I also spend a decent amount of time developing updating our internal measures and making sure that we are appropriately tracking our pro bono commitments and our pro bono involvements and that we know what our outcomes are and that we're celebrating with our lawyers, not just victories, but that we're celebrating involvements with our lawyers, which I think is really important. And then finally, I think it's important to lead by example. So I don't just direct the pro bono initiative, but because I am asking our lawyers to step outside of their commercial practice and to step outside of their comfort zones, I think it's important to lead by example. So I have my own docket of pro bono cases, some of which are cases in areas of the law that I'm very familiar and some of which are cases that are taking me outside of my own comfort zone so that I know what it feels like to learn a new area of law. Um, It's exciting and it's also terrifying. And having felt it for myself, I think I'm in a better position to understand what our lawyers need in order to be comfortable stepping outside of their own comfort zone.
0: Yeah, it gives you that added credibility because you have that firsthand experience going through it yourself. Is there anything that you wish you could be doing more of if you just had all the time in the world? Something on your to-do list that just kind of never creeps up to the top of the list?
1: If I had all the time in the world, I would, number one, organize my office. (laughs) Um, And then number two, if I had all of the time in the world, I would love to spend more time outside of my office in the communities that we serve. I spend a lot of time traveling and meeting with my lawyers and meeting with service providers and other stakeholders, but if I had all of the time in the world, I would take more of that time and spend it feet on the ground in the communities that we serve so that I can get that consumer perspective of what is actually needed from legal services, so I can bring that back to our firm, bring that back to our pro bono communities, and help better to drive the responses based on what people in the communities actually need.
0: It's a good action item. We're we're all going to have to work on being in more than one place at one time. (laughs) I'm sure some smart physics lab (laughs) can figure that out someday. (laughs) Yes, and if you do figure it out, please let me know. (laughs) We will spread the word. Um, So since that's a future-looking experiment, let's talk about the future. What's on the horizon for the firm's pro bono program? Could you share uh, something that's in the works or identify one or two shortcomings? shorter, long-term goals that you have for the program? Short-term,
1: we have just moved from our 2016 fiscal year into our 2017 fiscal year. And what we're looking to accomplish, what my personal goals are for the Pro Bono Initiative at Ackerman for 2017, is to continue growing and deepening the involvements that we currently have We have a pro bono and philanthropic partnership with the National Court Appointed Special Advocates, CASA, which serves children in foster care. And I'm really excited about continuing to grow that particular relationship. We serve as advocates for children in foster court as part of our pro bono initiative, but we also serve the organization serving those kids. So we provide transactional pro bono assistance to CASA, both at the national level and at the local and regional levels. And I'm really excited about continuing to grow and to deepen that relationship with CASA, because service through pro bono to the organization allows those within the organization to focus on what they do best, which is providing the services, providing the justice, providing the representation to those kids. And I think that's the real key point about transactional pro bono is that while you may not always be directly affecting an individual low-income person in need, you are directly affecting an organization that serves hundreds or thousands of individual low-income people in need, which can be a really great opportunity and service. I'm also very excited about continuing to build the level of involvement among attorneys and other professionals at Ackerman within the Pro Bono Initiative to be, now that I am coming into my second year in service to Ackerman, to be really working with all of my colleagues to identify their interests and to match their interests with pro bono opportunities that are going to meet their personal and professional goals. I think that that's something that we in the pro bono council role are always striving to do. Um, But In particular, this coming year, that's really going to be a focus for me. I also think that this particular year has opened doors to a lot of need across the country. Um, There's a lot of change going on across the country and there are a lot of communities that may have flown under the radar before But now we are really beginning to understand the true depth of their need. And so I'm really excited to be working not just with my Ackerman colleagues, but also with my pro bono colleagues at other firms through the Association of Pro Bono Counsel to find the ways that we as lawyers can respond to both triage needs and long-term needs of people who are living on that cusp, of people who don't always have immediate access to the justice system. And I think that collectively, across the board, across every firm and every lawyer that's involved in pro bono, 2017 is going to see a heightened need for that.
0: Yeah, I think we all need to strap in. <laughs> There's going to be a lot, a lot to do, and uh, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Um, I, we were talking about the future. I want to take a step back and talk a little bit about a project um, that you've been involved in um, in the past, which I think reflects some of the themes that you just mentioned. It's a, a large collaborative effort on behalf of juvenile lifers. So, could you tell us a little bit about the access to justice issues presented by juvenile lifers and the response of the legal community in Florida? And you were such a leader in these efforts. I think it'll be amazing to hear your experience and perspective.
1: In many ways, Florida sometimes feels behind the curve, behind the um, progressive movement of some of the, our other sister states who have taking a a more progressive stance on certain issues. But in the realm of Eighth Amendment constitutionality of juvenile sentencing, Florida has really been at the leadership in terms of recognizing that kids are different, taking the Miller versus Florida and Graham, I'm sorry, Miller versus... I said that case wrong, so I'm just going to start again. Florida has really been on the forefront of accepting that kids are different and taking not just the words, but the overlying meaning of Miller versus Alabama, Montgomery versus Louisiana, and Graham versus Florida, and developing both under federal law and under Florida's constitution an understanding and developing case law that shows that kids are different and that kids do not deserve, except in perhaps the very rarest of circumstances, the most egregious punishment. And so while many other states waited until after Montgomery versus Louisiana came out to determine that Miller— which is a United States Supreme Court case holding that juveniles who have been convicted of first-degree murder cannot get mandatory life. Florida didn't wait for Montgomery. Under the Florida Constitution, just a couple weeks before I first joined Ackerman, the Florida Supreme Court issued a series of four cases holding Miller retroactive defining how the state of Florida has to go through an individualized sentencing hearing for all juveniles convicted of serious crimes and opening the doors for the kids many of whom most of whom aren't kids anymore sitting in prison on life sentences were then going to be eligible for a resentencing hearing On my second day at Ackerman back in 2015, I got an email from a colleague at the Southern Poverty Law Center. The email was entitled, The Big Idea. And in that email, my colleague asked me if, in my new role at Ackerman, with Ackerman's focus on pro bono affecting children, if I would lead a developing coalition of advocates on behalf of kids figure out, number one, who is going to be eligible for resentencing, and number two, how we are going to ensure effective representation of every single one of these children and juvenile offenders. And so on my second or third week at Ackerman, I went up to Jacksonville, I met with the group of people that were forming the initial coalition, and we started developing a plan. And at that time, we were looking at yeah, about 300 juvenile offenders who were going to be eligible for resentencing. 300 300's a lot, but when you're looking at 300 kids spread across the state of Florida, it seems like a pretty doable number. Over the past year and a half, case law in Florida has continued to develop in that 300 number, has now developed into a possibility of upwards of 1,500 juvenile offenders sitting in prison who will be eligible for resentencing. So what began as a manageable task very quickly, and because of our progressive understanding in Florida of the concepts of Graham and Miller and Montgomery, has really blossomed into a major triage initiative. We worked um, to develop a statewide training. So in September 2015, less than six months into my tenure at Ackerman, I worked with public defenders, private attorneys, and mitigation specialists to develop a training that was offered free of charge to about 200 lawyers who came in person for two days of hands-on training in how to effectively represent these kids and that was made available free of charge to every single public defender across the state in an audio recording. We've continued doing the trainings. Luckily, about nine months into my tenure, Florida International University Law School got grant funding to bring in a statewide coordinator, a lawyer with experience in A lawyer with experience in major criminal cases is now overseeing the entire initiative, continuing to do statewide trainings, continuing to collaborate with private lawyers, pro bono lawyers, and public defenders, and continuing to track outcomes, track cases, and develop a Concerted strategy across the state. And I'm just, I was lucky that an issue that I had interest in and that I had experience in arose at the time that it did in Florida. And we're lucky in Florida that we have such a strong network of people who really care about these issues. And because they're lawyers, they're in a position to deal with and to address these issues. And what that also means for us as Florida is that we can really serve. As a mentor for the states that are now just beginning to grapple with the retroactivity of Miller because their states did not adopt retroactivity until the United States Supreme Court told them that they had to. So now I'm working with colleagues in Pennsylvania and in Michigan and in other states with huge numbers of juvenile offenders who are now eligible for resentencing. To help them. And luckily, because I have such amazing lawyers at Ackerman, I have pro bono volunteers working in some of these other states to directly represent individual clients. So we're firing on all pistons on that particular initiative. I was lucky to have been asked to be involved, and I feel very lucky that I have been able to be part of an initiative that has been so meaningful for legal reform for constitutional law and especially for the individual kids who now have the possibility of coming home to their families.
0: The community was lucky to have you because this is such an impactful effort and a real leader, right? It's a it's a place that Florida can be ahead of the curve. So it's it's very exciting and so much good work going on in this area. Um We talked earlier about the Florida Bar Foundation, and in an interesting recent development, they announced the hiring of a new South Florida pro bono program officer who's going to work out of space donated by the firm in your Miami office. And I love this arrangement because we are advocates that law firms um, need our legal services and public interest partners. We need to support them with donations and financial support, but there are other things that we can do to be of help too to our public interest partners, including space, <laughs> giving space when we have space available. So how did that come about and what are your hopes for uh, this arrangement and what the program officer is going to do to to help move South Florida ahead?
1: I was so excited When Ackerman immediately and without question said yes, when the Florida Bar Foundation came to us with this idea, Um, you know, like you said, donating space, donating that overhead, which can be really expensive and can drain nonprofits' ability to fund service projects, being able to donate those types of things Being able to donate the space really goes hand-in-hand with our commitment to serving our communities both locally, across the state, and across the country. I also am personally lucky because the Florida Bar Foundation's lawyer, based in South Florida, has her office right next to mine. We've got an adjoining wall, and I can't even tell you how exciting it is to have another person right next to me with the same type of job description that I have, which is to grow pro bono involvement writ large. She is based in Miami. Uh, Her name is Anais Taboas. She is originally from Miami, has worked as a pro bono director in a couple different legal services programs across Florida and is now coming home to roost. She's going to be involved in developing pro bono initiatives and collaboratives from Key West to Palm Beach. Um, She's been on the job for about two weeks, and already she's out in the community. She's meeting people. She's helping to discern what the needs of the communities are, what the needs of the legal services organizations are, and what the abilities of the firms are to get involved and address those access needs. I'm just lucky all around that I will get to work with Anais, that her office is right next to mine and we'll be able to collaborate and talk and put our heads together on so many different initiatives.
0: Well, we'll look forward to having you back down the road and you can update us on the progress being made, the awesome brainstorming sessions, the secret not code that you develop, you know, across the <laughs> wall, the, the awesome coffee chats from the hall, because sometimes the impromptu ideas are the ones that grow the, the longest legs. and just happens, you know. Sparks fly. So, let's let's end with this, Whitney. Who's your pro bono or access to justice role model and why?
1: So, my role models are the people who make their careers in public service. I don't think that it's just one person. I think it's everyone on the front lines who gets up in the morning every single day and goes to work with a goal of helping someone who otherwise wouldn't receive legal services. They're on the front lines every day. They're working for justice every day. It is their job. It is their goal. It is their life. My role models are the people who give up the pursuit of major financial gain, who often give up many things in their personal lives in order to be able to meet the needs of their clients Who are at risk, at risk of losing their homes, at risk of losing their jobs, at risk of losing their lives, however you may want to define that. My role models are the people, the experts on the front lines that lead the rest of us, that inspire the rest of us, and that help the pro bono volunteers to make the most meaningful impact on the people who need it the most.
0: They are so inspiring, no doubt, and you're inspiring as well. You're doing amazing work, and thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank
1: you so much for having me. The pleasure has been all mine.
0: Thank you so much to Whitney for joining us today. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already and please take a moment to leave a review. We'd appreciate the feedback, and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the program and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. As always, to learn more about the Pro Bono Institute and our work, including upcoming events such as a conversation with Tim Myopolis, the president and chief executive officer of Fannie Mae, which is scheduled for January 25th, and our annual conference, which will be in March, please visit our website at probonoinst.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. Be warned, we might just read them on the air. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.